0: Hey, Sanctus Church, so glad that you're back with us again. I was reflecting this week that my family has been living through, in some variation, what your family or friend circle has been living through in the last nine months. Uh, you know, shutdowns and wondering about jobs and life and, and the economy and trying to understand how to live with the pandemic. And then in my family, you know, online schooling, definitely learned that homeschooling is not my strength or my wife's strength at all. Learning to deal with masks Always pumping to make sure that our hands are clean with sanitizer, on and on it goes. And in the middle of the pandemic, my wife and I thought since our life was so boring and so normal and so awesome and we needed to spice things up, we would sell our house and then buy a house and then move during COVID. Because, you know, we thought, why not? Everything else is going sideways. Why not that too? And so you can imagine I've got two dogs and three kids and my wife and myself. So we had to get the house ready and I purged, and I've been purging for two years and thought I did a great job. And it was like, where did all this stuff come from? Maybe you can relate to that. And then not only that, we're trying to prepare the house. And the dogs, don't pee on the carpets. The kids, we don't own the walls anymore. Oh, and then people are coming through our house during COVID. How do we do that right? And then we found a house and had to do the same thing there and sold our house and bought a house. And we're moving in three weeks. And last week, I was sitting amongst boxes. For you who have moved, you know what I'm talking about. You're trying to eat everything from the freezer. you trying not to break anything. And I was sitting amongst boxes and I was depressed. I was like, Oh, I just hate this. I want to get on with this. And as I was looking at the mountain of boxes, the new house popped into my mind and how excited my wife and myself and actually even our kids are to explore and grow in this new home. And right when I saw the new house in my mind, I got up and I started filling boxes again. In other words, the better future kept me going in the not-so-great now. It helped me, remember these words, persevere and endure. It kept me going because there is not hopeful, wishful thinking. There's actually real hope. There is a real, literal place coming that we're excited about. That's the whole background for Paul. He says you're surrounded by the boxes and you're moving, and it's not great, but there literally is something better that you can't wait to get into. So what? Persevere. Persevere. Now, we're going to arrive at chapter three. If you're just joining us, we're in 2 Timothy. These are Paul's last words before he's executed. And we're now coming to the end of his last words. Let me recap very quickly what he's done so far. He has worked so hard to remind Timothy and all the churches of that generation and all of us of God's amazing work in the past that cannot be changed, which builds confidence and should produce faith-rooted gratitude. Then he, as we discovered, with great compassion, outlined the present reality and how we're called to endure and persevere and keep going. It's like the Holy Spirit is cheering us on through Paul and through the Holy Scriptures. Keep going, it's worth it. All will be made right in the end. The better house is coming. 2 Timothy 2:3. Join with me in suffering, like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Keep going, keep fighting, the better is on its way. But now. Paul, under the impulse of the Holy Spirit, and we saw this a little bit last week, moves from compassion and encouragement to warning. Last week, he addressed, when we were going through it, false teachers in Timothy's church and in our day. And it's almost then he looks beyond, in the now and the not yet. And he says, let me outline for you what the world almost looks like without God. And if there was one transitional idea between chapter two and three that I read this week by another pastor, it was this, you anticipate victory, but you prepare for battle. You anticipate victory, but you prepare for battle. So Paul prophetically then says in 2 Timothy 3.1, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. You're like, oh, hooray. That, this is gonna be a fun message. Yeah, hold on. He starts by saying, mark this, understand this. You know this. Just look around. Just wake up and look around at what we're seeing. There will be terrible times. Now, this reads in the original language, fierce or hard to deal with. But terrible actually has a a more deadly overtone. It means violent. Now, what's wild is I discovered this this week. I didn't know this. This word in Greek, this terrible, violent word, is only used one other time in the whole New Testament. It's when Jesus confronts two of the most powerful demonic powers into human beings. It's in Matthew eight twenty-eight when Jesus arrived to the other side of the region, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent, terrible, no one could pass that way. Okay, so I want you to see the connection. Paul says in the last times, in the end times, they will feel like these two men, violent, influenced and controlled by evil, attempting to stop and thwart the Son of God. Now, lots of us start going, okay, well, John, when did we start living in the last days? Now, for some of us who grew up in generations before in church, you came from churches, all they did is talk about the last days, and the latest book was, you know, Hal Lindsey, so you know what I'm saying? (laughs) What's, What's happening? Well, actually, let's let the Scriptures define this. The last days, the end times started when Jesus came into time and space. The last day started at Christmas. That's the beginning of the end. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 1, 2. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Peter wrote it like this in 1 Peter 1:20. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. But more, it's not just Jesus' coming that start the last days or his ministry, or literally his physical death, or even his physical resurrection, that start the last days, though no, all of those did. it's also the giving the whole, of the Holy Spirit to everyday normal people like us. Peter, when he pre- preached the very first Christian sermon, quotes the prophet Joel, actually Joel chapter two, and listen to what he says in Acts 2:17, "This is the very first Christian sermon every, ever preached. In the last days. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. So do you see it? The last days have been around since this moment. The last run of history started at Jesus's birth, Jesus's resurrection, and when the Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost. We as Christians reject the idea, the myth of non-ending progressive history. We believe history is a beginning and an end because we believe someone is controlling history, God. And since Jesus has come and gone and the Holy Spirit has been given, we have been living in the last days. And isn't it amazing that we, unlike Old Testament believers, have the Holy Spirit personally in us and we know Jesus is returning? Amazing. Some of you should be yelling in your living room or in your car, what? Amen. Right. But between Christmas and the very end, Paul says, mark this. The days are going to be terrible. And why does this matter? Okay, everyone lean in. This is really important because we have over 50 nations in our church. All people and every culture, every ethnic group on earth will in varying degrees be exactly the same under sin. So if you live in Norway or Nigeria, if you're in Peru or you live in Germany or you're Canadian or you live in Ethiopia or you're southern Sudan or, or you're from China or Indonesia, though our cultures are vastly different, we still in the end will end up doing the same things. That's why Paul expands. He gives the signposts, the descriptions of what this will look like and feel like and even what to expect. So Paul, classic Paul, gives not one, not two. Paul gives, ready? 19 descriptions, 19 sort of descriptions or outposts of what you can look at to know you're in the last days. And these outlines look like what human beings look like when they oppose God between Jesus's resurrection and the second coming. Verse two. Oh, I hope you're ready. <laughs> People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Boastful, proud, abusive. They're gonna be disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, And brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Okay, have a great week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this sermon. Whoa, right? Let's go through each one of them. You're like, really? Yep, let's go. Lovers of themselves, selfish, self absorbed, and narcissistic. One wrote this self love sees everything in the world only as it affects them. They skew their perceptions of every event to bolster their own self, uh, their own sense of, ready, superiority or significance or safety. Wow. Superiority or significance or safety. They seek comfort and promotion of self above everything else. Now, I know what's going on. Some of you might be going, oh, I know someone who's like this, or I know some politician down south. Well, true, but this is not just a personal sinful experience. This is the core of every human being. When we place ourselves at the center and not God, we become lovers of self. It was the philosopher Philo who once pointed out, the more you get involved in self-love, the, the, the closer you get to becoming atheistic, in practice in thinking or in reality. Let, let me put it this way: The more you, the more your views, the more your goals, the more your agenda, the more your needs. The more your insights, the more your rights, the more your pain, the more your grief, the more your experiences, the more your inclinations, the more your education grow at the center of you. They're not wrong, all of you, but if they grow at the center of you, then God has moved more and more out until the point where the, you, to, to the point where you change him, And he becomes a God that you're comfortable with, or you're not sure if he's out there or need him, agnosticism, and or you don't even believe in him. So here's the wild thing. Self-love in this negative sense is the ground floor and is the door opening for religion and agnosticism and atheism all at the same time. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 121. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him or gave as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile, and their hearts became darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Hmm. That was only the first description. <laughs> Lovers of money. Money's not evil, by the way. But it can become the ground floor of many other evils. That's why in the Ten Commandments, if you read them, "Thou shalt not covet." It's the last one because if you get involved in coveting, you actually end up doing all the other ones. Let me give you the example. It's like if you have an Android phone or an iPhone, what, whatever your piece of technology is, it's not inherently evil. Now, what you do with it matters. So you can look on porn, look at porn with it, or you can give online to the church with it. You can tear someone down on Twitter or Instagram, or you can write an encouraging text to a friend. See, the device is an evil. What you do with it matters. And that's what Jesus teaches about loving money versus money itself. Luke sixteen thirteen: no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve, love both God and money. So when you love yourself, in a negative way, and you love money, it will corrupt your moral compass. Pleasure replaces God every single time. And then he says, oh, by the way, that's just the first two descriptions of an average human being. Then we're all boastful. This comes from the word con artist: big promises, big statements, stealing, then disappearing. And then he said, proud. Now, this is arrogant. In in Hellenistic Jewish thinking, this was the strongest description they used for the core and DNA of Satan himself. All human beings in one form or another have followed suit. We've become proud and said, no. This is not just saying that we're boastful or arrogant or we think we're better than other people because look at my money or look at my looks or education, which of course, every time is sin. This is more deadly and more consuming for the whole human race. This is when we say to the creator as created beings, we know better than you. When we say, remember, we're just dirt animated, valuable, but we're just dirt, we're dust. And we say to the creator, no, I'm gonna tell you what's right and wrong. It's, it's the human refusal to worship God as he's revealed himself. It's the human refusal to acknowledge that God hates sin. And when we say sin is fine, that's why Paul also in Romans 1, which is by the way, this passage in Romans 1 are connected. He uses arrogant and boastful as descriptors. Romans 1:29. human beings have become, have become filled with every kind of wickedness. They are arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. Simply put, we as human beings regularly call evil good and good evil. This is the real picture of the human heart. This thing that you've been taught that we were born good in society makes us evil, wrong. We are born prideful and bent towards ourself In our mother's womb, we are born into sin. Valuable, loved by God, but sinful. Absolutely 100%. You don't need to teach children how to sin. They know it very quickly. Back to 2 Timothy, the next description of human beings is we're abusive. This is where we get our word blasphemer from. Now, let me work this out. Blaspheming goes in two directions. Because every human being is made in the image of God, when you slander another human being, when you gossip against another human being, when you attack another human being, you are blaspheming because you're attacking the image of God. Wow. Blaspheming also means every time that you mock or attack or downgrade or denigrate God in your words against God, that's blasphemy. All human beings are abusive. And then it says human beings are disobedient to their parents. A lot of parents go, mm-hmm, yes, amen to that. Looking at your kid right now, are you listening to Pastor John? Are you listening? (laughs) There's a connection between disobedience to God and disobedience to parents. There's also a rejection of wisdom. And also, really, this is about rejection of how the Creator set authority boundaries in creation. Then human beings are ungrateful unthankful, entitled. When we don't get our way, we sulk and we're sour and we demand. We're unholy. This simply means we break the Ten Commandments. We don't love God and we don't love our neighbor. We reject being decent in the holy sense. If you really want to know if you're a sinner or not, just read the Ten Commandments. You'll know quick. We all would. We're without love. We, we are selfish and bent towards ourselves Now, this next one is really interesting. Human beings will be unforgiving in the last days. Now, in Greek, this reads without strong drink, without libation. And I was like, what in the world does alcohol or drink have to do with forgiveness? Well, then I found this out. Historically, when groups would come together to sue for peace or to try to end a feud, in a pagan context, the two groups would come together, get some alcohol or a strong drink, and they would pour it out in front of the gods and make an oath. And the pouring out would be like a sign of what? of offering, and they'd sue for peace. And Paul says people and family groups and nations will be the opposite of this. They will refuse reconciliation. They will be without truce. They will hate, and hostility will be so intense that peace is now impossible. They will not admit wrongdoing. They will not forgive others. They will be odd with each other, at odds with each other. Now, by the way, I'm preaching this the day before the US election. The US election happens tomorrow in real time. I have no clue what will happen uh, next Sunday. But let me tell you, if I have ever seen in the last 20 years, an unforgiving spirit it has been during this moment. I was seeing something uh, the other day where, uh, it was came up on my feed where it said that people hate the other people and other political parties more than they love actually their own views unforgiving slanderous this is actually where we get the name devil from lying accusing and entrapping the same with human beings we will all act like the devil in mind in our speech in our policies on our online posting we will accuse we will be without self-control now this is so important the bible tells us to deny ourselves to deny our passions to deny our wants to deny how we feel we are to obey God and to love our neighbor. He says, in the last days, we will not be controlled people. The next one is really intriguing. It's the word brutal. And this was used especially for wild animals like lions. And, And maybe you've seen on National Geographic when a lion comes and prounces on a gazelle and literally rips it apart. That's what this word brutal means. And it says, in the last times, people will act like wild, dangerous animals. And it's true. One out of the three girls, one out of the seven boys, sexually assaulted. Raping the environment in a way that we might not recover from. Slavery and stealing and unjust war and drug culture and, and, and kidnapping. Humans, much of the time, are wild, violent animals. of so you're like, oh, no, I'm not that. Okay, maybe you haven't participated in those things, but Jesus always taught us what we think is also what we are. We will not be lovers of the good. Let me camp here for a moment. When Paul was writing Titus, he used the opposite of this to describe a good uh, Christian elder leader in First. Uh, to, sorry, t- Titus 1.8. Rather, this leader must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. Now, a person who loves what is good is not just that they love God's word. It's not that just that they love the qualities of God left in creation. It's deeper, richer, and actually more offensive than this. This person longs to see the world as it should be. They seek and pray and try to restore God's creation to a pre-fall state in Eden. But the average human being does not love the pre-fall state of Eden. We like much of how it is today. Some of you are like, John, are you done? Please, I'm getting so... Oh, got to keep going. There's five more. We as human beings also are treacherous. Huh. The word treacherous was used when the people of God turned on prophets like Jeremiah, for example, and jailed them or killed them when they spoke God's word. This is the same word used for Judas when he betrayed Jesus. So in the end of time, in the last days, people will have access to God's word and people will have access to Jesus, God's son, and they will be treacherous and not listen to God's word and not listen to God's son. This is so true. Think about how many affairs have happened in a hotel room in the Gideon Bible sitting right beside the bed. Treacherous, rash, speaking before thinking, hot-headed, impetuous, falling headlong into sin, conceited, a wrong estimation of our personal importance. It reads in Greek, we're like wrapped in smoke. We love pleasure rather than we love God. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll in any direction as we see fit. The future is now, and Paul says, this is just us. But then wildly, the 19th description, he sort of moves from all this pagan, violent stuff, and he goes, oh, and by the way, if you're deeply religious or spiritual, you too. He says, most human beings will also be this. Verse 5, you'll have a form of godliness, but you'll deny its power. Now, this cuts two ways, outside the church and inside the church. But both groups are nothing more than an empty shell. No power, no real life change from a biblical worldview. Think about the billions of deeply religious people on earth today. They're honest and they're good and they're trying to be faithful to God or the gods or the universe. But let me say this. Certainty, consistency, and sincerity is not able to bring salvation or real life change according to God. Certainty, consistency, And sincerity is not able to bring salvation and real life change according to God. Think about the endless religious conversations, the millions of books and podcasts on faith and self-help and spirituality and religion, endless actions, many sincere, much of the content even okay, but not the power to save. Nice, kind, intellectually informed people like Muslims who I know pray seven times a day, fast for a month, give to the poor. Buddhists become monks and live in poverty. Hindus attend temple and bless people. Sikhs continually give and give to those who are not even of the Sikh faith. Wicked witches cast spells to bless. Orthodox Jews even today praying at the Wailing Wall for the return of the Messiah. Uh, Many Christians in air quotes, go to church, say the creeds and go to confession. Religious, pious, committed, but lost. This was best outlined in a conversation between a man named Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus was a world-class thinker, one of, a world-class religious thinker, and a very pious, honest, and sincere person. And Jesus sits with them at night, and he says in John 3, 5, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of the Spirit. Uh, we're all born of our mums. When our, our mums' water broke, we're born of water, and then we're we need to be then born of the spirit. This is why he says in verse six, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. In other words, there's no evolution from flesh to spirit. You cannot use the power of you or self-help or religion or good works or education or psychology or science to meet God personally, to be right in right relationship with them. It's not wrong. These things are not inherently evil necessarily, but it takes divine intervention. I love when one person said, religion is man-made. Religion is of the physical realm, impressive down here, rubbish in heaven. Jesus says to Nicodemus, verse 7, you should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. Don't miss the call of Jesus to this good, kind, moral, religiously involved person. No one can experience the reign of God. No one can have a relationship with God. No matter your history or race or religious activity, your theological learning, Nicodemus, your spiritual insights, doubts, uncertainties, wishes, hopes, fears, habits, and experiences don't gain you entrance. Again, they're not all necessarily evil, but there is no power in them. A real person that knows and has encountered a real, the real God does not trust in what they do or who they are because they cannot do it consistently ready all the time. God is perfect and God demands perfection. And he says, Nicodemus, your best efforts don't cut it because you can't do it perfectly all the time. Let me read this verse again. Having the form of godliness, but denying its power. Religion. But then Paul goes one step further, have nothing to do with such people. Oh, you're like, I can't hang out with anyone who's religious? Oh, no, no, no. Paul now focuses in on one little group, false Christian teachers that appear Christian, but are not. They do not evidence the presence of the spirit because they teach things that are against what the Holy Spirit wrote in the scriptures. Not only that, they teach lifestyles that grieve the spirit. This is exactly what Paul wrote in Titus 1.16. These so-called Christians claim to know God, but their actions deny him. See, to see Jesus right, you need the Holy Spirit. To embrace the gospel, you need the Holy Spirit. To to have physical resurrection, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. To say no to sin as a Christian, you need the Holy Spirit. To understand the truth of the Bible, you need the Holy Spirit. So when so-called Christians come along and deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to God except through them. When they deny Jesus really physically died and really physically rose from the dead. When they deny that every human being is called to be born again and only find salvation in Jesus. When they deny that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. When they say to you, you don't need to suffer or give up your longings or desires for the sake of the gospel. You can do anything you want. When they say you don't need to obey scripture they have the appearance of godliness without the power of the spirit. They sound Christian. They sing Bethel songs and Hillsong songs and say they can even sing great as, a, you know, great Is your faithfulness and they can sing amazing grace. They use Christian words. They quote the Bible, but they're not of God. That's the human race in entirety. From violent and pagan to disobeying appearance to religion replacing God to spirituality leading us to nowhere. Now, Paul focuses back on Timothy's situation 2,000 years ago, back to the false teacher's ongoing damage and work in his community. And he focuses in on the victims that he was starting to talk about last week. He says, look, you know, Timothy, what's going on. Verse 6, these false teachers, they are the kind who worm their ways into homes and gain control over gullible women. Who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Okay. Gullible women reads little women or weak willed women. Now, first, don't shut off the podcast or, or not, you know, just kill the live stream. This is not a statement about all women. Like many people have actually preached. This is not saying women are, you know, really intuitive and really emotional. So they get really easily seduced. No. If you read first and second Timothy and Titus, five times Paul speaks incredibly highly of women. What most scholars think is happening is a group of women were brand new Christians in this church, and they had just left sexual and religious and spiritual situations, but they had not fully abandoned and rejected the old ways of thinking and acting. And these teachers come along, and they're like, actually, don't worry. You don't need to worry about that. You can blend the old with the new. They mix pagan and Christian thinking. You can have the best of both worlds. In other words, the spiritual thing matters, so what you do sexually doesn't matter with your body because the real you is inside. So these false teachers, it would seem, targeted this group of women. Many other scholars also believe that they were matrons. They were women of wealth and influence. So they targeted them. So this group was vulnerable and gullible because they had not renounced their history in in a, a good way. And that's why Paul says next, not only were they gullible, they are loaded down with sin, present tense. In other words, what they were doing pre-Jesus, they're still doing post-Jesus. So these sinful patterns, you could call them footholds, made them more vulnerable. So they have not rejected old religious sexual spiritual thinking. And they're still involved in the sins with the religious sexual spiritual stuff. And so there's a foothold from the other side that's, that makes them gullible and vulnerable. And then this last description is so helpful for a postmodern moment. They're always learning, verse 7, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. This group of women were always looking for the next thing, the next teaching, the next spiritual fad, the next spiritual experience, the next self-help book, the next podcast. They know the truth, but it's boring. They know the truth, but it's not exciting enough. They know the truth, but it doesn't suit where they're at right now. Paul says, Hey, these false teachers, just like Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Okay. You're like, who's Janus and Jambres? Well, you won't find them in the Bible, but these are the names given in extra Jewish biblical thinking and also in the church fathers to the two sorcerers, sorcerers or warlocks that confront Moses and Aaron. In front of Pharaoh. Remember, Aaron and Moses go, Pharaoh let my people go, no, I will not. And Aaron takes the staff and throws it down and becomes a snake. And then these others come, right? And an unholy power throw down their snakes. But what happens? You can read it, right? In Exodus seven twelve. but Aaron's staff ate their staffs. It's a spiritual conflict moment. Here's what Paul is saying. Just like those people had real power, but not God's power. Just like those men opposed God and also his assigned leaders. So the same with these false teachers. Yes, they do teaching. Yes, they do miracles, but they are not true leaders. Uh, They oppose true leaders and they oppose God himself. They're not going to get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Not only will the scriptures expose them, Not not only will people in time see who they might be, but at the end of time when Jesus returns, oh, trust me, they'll be exposed for who they truly are. Uh, I know that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot to go through. So here's the first question. Did you see yourself in the list of 19? The 19 attributes, the signposts? Of course you did. Of course you did. That's why the Bible says we as human beings, though we're made in the image of God and loved and profoundly valuable, we're sinners. Are you a lover of yourself? Are you a lover of money? Are you boastful? Are you proud? Are you abusive? Disobedient to your parents? Ungrateful, unholy, without love? Are you unforgiving? Are you slanderous? Are you without self control? Are you brutal? Are you not a lover of good? Are you treacherous? Are you rash? Are you conceited? Are you a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God? Do you have a form of godliness but deny its power? No matter who you are listening to me today, whether you have the title Christian or you're agnostic or atheist or you're spiritual or a New Ager or involved in wicked witchcraft, or maybe you're a devout Hindu or an Orthodox Jew or a Muslim or a Zoroastrian, I don't know where you're coming from. But this is God speaking to you right now and exposing who you truly are from his view. And if he exposes us, then we know our true condition, which is helpful. But if he just left us here, we'd be unbelievably undone. But that's not the end of the story. Listen, this is God's word to someone today. Romans 5 But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, all 19 things, Christ died for us. Since we've been justified by Jesus's blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through Jesus's life? A a good friend of mine, Bruxy Cavey, who leads a significant church in Ontario, we love Jesus together and probably disagree on every secondary issue there is, but we're united in the gospel. I love when he said this week on Instagram, I think, the cross of Christ is the place where humanity did everything we could to get God to stop loving us, and we failed miserably. Fire. If you have seen yourself as God's enemy today and a sinner, needing to be saved, whether you're devout or not, this is what God is inviting you to do. Romans ten nine. 9. If you declare with your mouth out loud, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Turn from your sin. Admit the 19 things or the things you're involved and say, I'm a sinner. I need salvation and grace. Jesus saved me. Turn from that sin. Accept his work on the cross and ask him to change your life. And he will. What about us who are followers of Jesus? Well, number one, expectations matter. I've taught this so many times. If you have bad expectations, it can kill a marriage. Bad expectations can kill a business, can kill a church, can kill a a best friendship. So expectations matter for us as we walk through this life, because we could shipwreck our faith by mistake. So let me just say this. Why are we so shocked? Sinful people will be sinful. Satan will resist God and the world with its many isms, pluralism, secularism, atheism, individualism, materialism, hedonism, religion, and spirituality will be alive until Jesus returns. The presence of false teachers shows us we're just living in the last times. There's always been a battle between truth and error, darkness and light. So just don't be overwhelmed and don't give up. This is just a sign of the times. Now next, this matters in Holy Spirit. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to everyone I'm speaking to you right now to really share if this is true for them. This is really important. Are you, as a Christian, like the women in Timothy's church, are you always trying to blend the old with the new? Are you burdened by sin and it's unconfessed and it's secret? Are you always looking for the next thing, your view, your position, the next experience? In other words, is truth boring? I would encourage you, I would exhort you to use an old word as one of your pastors to not be a gullible person. To genuinely cut away old thinking and root it in scripture. To be honest in the light with other Christians about sin. That you're not burdened by sin anymore. This is why I love releasing prayer in our church. Because people from every background come and they sit and they just confess all their stuff. And they see grace in the experience. But nothing's hidden anymore. I encourage you, if the Holy Spirit's telling you that you're the gullible, weak-willed person, just admit it and be free. Two last things. Now you know why all the time I'm asking our church to pray for God's intervention. Do you see how bad it is? There is no way those 19 things are going to be cut away and undone unless God shows up and intervenes. There is no way that we're going to give up those things without the Holy Spirit showing up and bringing godly repentance. There is no way that Toronto will turn to Jesus on mass and give up deep religious-held views or deeply-held philosophical. It's not going to happen unless there's a sovereign act. Would you this week again just say, Oh God, have mercy on Toronto. Have mercy on my friends and on my neighbours. But let me transition here. We cannot forget that though this is the state of the world and it's hard, we have to remember Jesus and his words to us. In John 16:33. I've told you these things so that you so that in me you may have peace. In this world there's going to be many trouble. There's much trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So I want to end this message by us taking communion together. And again, I think most of you know, communion was instituted by Jesus just before he died, before he was executed, when all this stuff was taken out on him. And he said, my body's going to be broken for you. My blood's going to be spilled for you. I'm going to take on all the sins of the world. Actually, even what you deserve, the wrath of God is going to be placed on me. The demonic are going to think that they, they, they won. But this is a new agreement that if you trust in my death and resurrection, you're going to have life, and I'm going to overcome all this stuff. So in this moment, as we're living in the last days, and again, like I'm saying, literally I'm preaching right now and have no clue what the world will look like in six days from now. Let me just say, Jesus has overcome the world. And his death and resurrection are true. So today when we take communion across all of our homes and all of our environments, we're declaring that Jesus really died and really rose again, and it's true. We're affirming that Jesus loves us. We're affirming that he has overcome the world. We're affirming that death, Satan, and sin are broken. We're affirming that he forgives us. As I preach all the time at communion, we're affirming the Psalms. His mercies are new every morning. And also what the gospels teach us, Jesus loves eating with sinners. So Jesus, just before you know he died, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And so wherever you're at, whatever piece of style of bread you have, Would you just break it now by yourself or in family units? And would you say, thank you, Jesus, that you've overcome the world? Would you take some wine or some juice, whatever you got, and would you just say either out loud or in your heart, thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Thank you that you've overcome the world. Thanks Jesus that we're in the last days. Thanks Jesus you're coming back. Thanks Jesus you've still not come back so there's hope for friends and family who have not said yes yet. Thank you Jesus that you've overcome the world and thank you Jesus for convicting us of our sins. So Lord, all those who are watching who have not been saved, would you save them? For those who are weak-willed and involved in compromise, set them free. If any one of those sins have stood out and we need to confess it, may it be so. And may you give us hope that this is stronger than anything we're going through. All glory be to God the Father who calls us. Glory be to God the Son who died and rose for us and prayed for us. All glory be to the Holy Spirit who is in us, who makes us like Jesus, who gives us his gifts, gives us his character, guarantees resurrection, and gives us hope. We all said together as a whole church, amen. God bless you and cannot wait to see you next week as we keep going in this very challenging, very needed, very relevant letter called 2 Timothy.